Do you want the title? The first one I'm going to read. I'm writing this from my mother's apartment. It's called Orange. All I could think about was being written into her life story. She made up a story back What was the inspiration on. for the story? My story is called Cigarettes. What was the genesis? Testing. I used to be almost dependent B, on voice. A a I want to talk to you. <laughs> and the conversation starts. Hello, and welcome to Off the Page, a podcast of stories, essays, and poetry from the Stanford University writing community. In each episode, a Stanford author will read a piece of their writing and then talk to us about their craft and process. I'm Mark Lebowski, Jones Lecturer in the Creative Writing Program. In this episode, Kai Carlson Wee will read a selection of poems from his debut collection, Rail. Kai Carlson Wee is the author of Rail, Boa Editions, 2018. He has received fellowships from the McDowell Colony, the Breadloaf Writers Conference, the Sewanee Writers Conference, and his work has appeared in Plowshares, Best New Poets, Agni, New England Review, and the Southern Review. His photography has been featured in Narrative Magazine, and his poetry film, Riding the High Line, has screened at film festivals across the country. A former Wallace Stegner Fellow, he lives in San Francisco and teaches poetry at Stanford University. You can read more of Kai's work at kaicarlsonwee.com. The first poem that I'm going to read that opens the book um, is set on freight trains uh, crossing the country from Minneapolis to Seattle. It's called Rail. I find it here in the wild alfalfa, head full of antipsychotics and blue rain. Twenty years old on a freight train riding the soy fields into the night, leaning away from the short grass prairie, the black Mississippi of dream. My brother asleep on the well wall beside me, nodding his head to the sway. What home are we leaving? What distances blur the electric fence? What hundred low thundering wheels of darkness are coming to carry us there? Rain and the singing wind over the auto racks, staring out west at the stars of our gods and the lonely dark stars of our hearts. Boarded up storefronts, burned down apartments, highway signs that only name the dead. We cross the station tracks, the broken legs of Sunday chairs left rusting in the yards. We know the way the story ends. Still, the whistle blows. The flare stacks whip their excess methane candles against the night. The wheels that brought us this far still roll, still churn the polished iron ash. The road goes on. The highway turns a deeper shade of black. And as the sun sinks down on the eastern Montana hills, peppered with horses and gunshot cars, the rails still lead us somewhere else and shine in the falling light. 
Um, the next poem that I'll read is sort of about uh, that time again. Uh, this one is called Poet at 24. In those days, the wind seemed to whittle me down to the root. Round off my fingers as if I were some piece of glass in the evening sea. If you saw me at the grocery store picking through fruit, my backpack hanging behind, eyes gone slack as a turned-off TV at the radio shack in the mall, testing the peaches and ripe avocados, scratching the skin of a grapefruit for luck. You would barely have noticed the hawk's foot necklace I wore on a copper electrical wire, the ribbon of foil I glued to my beanie to block out invisible low-wave rays. If you saw me at a coffee shop watching the crowd, scribbling notes on a wrinkled receipt, you would never have noticed yourself in those words. But you would be there still, in the softest rhyme, in streetlight spilling across your empty cup. You would be the simple wish of mist, the unnameable music that kept me alive, even after you turned to forget who I was and left through the automatic doors. <clears throat> um, this next poem I'll read is called, uh, is called King, and it's about a friend of mine who um, I grew up with and who died of a heroin overdose um, when we were 27. His name was Nick Zydelak. I go to the guardrail, looking out over the sea foam, looking out over the salmon heads breaking the waves, muscling back to the place of their birth, trapped in the floodlights, failing to leap up the dam. Sometimes the clarity. Sometimes the clarity and night river steaming, time standing still in its permanent memory, flies in the backwater gathered to feed on the skin. The smell of the ocean. The waters combining with other more powerful waters riding away from whatever would save them, knowing the other direction is pointless and not worth suffering through, what holds us together, but also what trembles. The first time you look at an actual lion pacing the length of its cage, the small irreversible ink stain breaking the face of whatever we skate on, Slumped at the edge of your girlfriend's bed, your pulse gone flat, no sweat, no resistance, no steam on the handheld mirror they tested for breath. The day you were found, I watched ducks drop down on the Nooksack River in pairs, drifting together in multicolored light leaving small, growing trails behind them. 
At first, I thought only the lights were alive. The river, the fish, the clusters of flies, they were tricks being played on the eyes. But now, getting up on the guardrail, watching the line where the river and ocean waves meet, the half-formed outriders failing inside us, and something behind all the highway signs shining. Not clarity of thought, or light, or time, but clarity of small things believing in themselves, dark heads breaking the surface again, more than the living, more than the dead. This is a poem that uh, was literally pretty dictated uh, verbatim to me um, by this guy that uh, hangs around Valencia Street in San Francisco. And I got to know him over the course of a couple months. And one day um, I sat down with him and we shared a cigarette and he wanted to tell me uh, this story. Um, so this is that story. It's called Freddy Krueger. Fuck this rain, man. You want to smoke? Here, take one. At least it fills you up with something. Gives you some heat. I'd give you the shirt off my back if you needed. I'd buy you a house if I won the prize. I'm a generous man underneath it. For real, I was bullied by this guy once. I let him in my apartment. He said he was a friend, an acquaintance. He took my body apart, fucked up my room real good, broke all my shit, shattered my glass plates. Now I walk with this gimpy leg. I know I look homeless. I know I look like a weirdo to people. I've got this shoulder blade thing. I can't feel my face on the right side. It's useless to try and press charges. It's just Freddy Krueger, man. It's some kind of nightmare I can't get away from. I've been punching air. I've just been swinging. It's like I'm not even here. These citizens look right through me. They walk and keep walking. I could have been a real person. I could have changed my life. I'm not retarded. I know what I see when I look in the mirror. I met the devil, man, straight up. He said he was looking to buy some weed, hang out. I used to do music. I used to have a hip-hop thing in Detroit. This was back in the day, like 1996. We used to do shows. We used to play skate parks and run down houses, anyone's party. I heard him knock and I opened the door. He broke me in half. Took all my records and shit. My widescreen TV. He did what he wanted. The floor of my room started shining. It looked like a layer of stars like a hole made of liquid glass. Sometimes at night there's a shine over there on the street. I can see it from my window, right under the taco stand. It's safe over there when the shine comes down. At least then I know I'm not dreaming. This is a poem about a time I was living in San Diego, and uh, there was a 
a young kid who was murdered uh, near the skate park where I used to go to skate. And um, it's called The Boy's Head. There was a year or two when none of it mattered. I woke up late, sat on the balcony porch with a cigarette, turned on the gaslight to scramble some eggs. Days seemed to flash and fold away like pages in a magazine. No one knew my name, and if they did, they didn't bring me up in conversation. I was living off the grid in the gaudy retirement halls of the Mount Helix apartments. My hair fell down in complete abandon, swinging from eye to eye, usually tied in the back with rubber bands or with shoelaces somebody left on the curb. Nobody cared about my style. On weekends, I went to the skate park in El Cajon and attempted to flirt with the girls. People came through, disappeared, made claims. The sun never altered its place in the sky. The floodlights came on and the metalheads listened to boomboxes perched on the stairs. I was down there one day in September, a day like any other day, when a boy's head was found in the playing field cut with a hacksaw, circled in little white stones. Local authorities said it was a gang thing, or a satanic ritual kind of thing. They said it was a product of organized crime, an underground collective, although no one really knew. The troubling part, to me at least, was that the boy wasn't even from town. He was on vacation with his parents from North Dakota, traveling by motorhome, headed for Zion and Flagstaff, Mount St. Helens, Vancouver, Rainier. For the first few days, there was vague speculation, but no one came forward, and no one was blamed. Weeks later, it seemed as though nothing had happened. The park flags waved in the same lacking breezes, the tennis balls hung in the chain-link fence. The skaters continued to circle the bowl, and the killer was soon forgotten. This, um, this is a love poem, and the way that I started writing poetry, uh was by writing love poems. And when I was in elementary school, I would uh, develop crushes on people in my class and I would leave little poems penned to them um, in their cubby holes or their lockers. But I kept writing poems, uh, love poems, um, as I got older. This is called Secret Air. I know no God, no ghost, no code that turns the burning engine back. I know a highway, field, stars above the sleeping corn. The river rolls, the world spins alone. We are not promised love like this. We don't decide what brighter angel comes, what water climbs the banks. It could have been a different year, a better pill, a weird forgotten dream, 
a song I heard behind the neighbor's door, the barking dog again. But it was you, the only one to make it last, to hold my head like this, to lead me back inside myself, to know, to be, the sadness of a summer horse unbridled on a hill, departing air, the farmhouse crumbling in the wind. I could have lived a hundred lives and never known a real kiss. I could have gone without your winter stars, your streetlight-tinted breath. But it was you, the one who made the darkness real, the highway blue, the roses hollow thorn. I know we die alone, in separate rooms, with canceled eyes and some disease inside our hearts. But still, we knew a love like this. We knew. And all the nights I sleep in someone else's arms. The rhythmic dark. The drifty San Francisco nights I wander with the crowd. From here to there to somewhere else. The Safeway lines and subway lines and traffic streaming west. I return again. I remember you and only you like this. Your careless grip. Your pale eyes beside me in the corn, the sheet of plywood for a bed. It is what is. Among the cricket's song, the muddy river rising up the banks, I meet you there. I turn to hold you in the secret air that only you will know. Hi, Kai. Hey, Mark. Thanks for being here on Off the Page. Um, so this book, Rail, as you've talked about, um, is concerned with questions of travel, of mm. road trips, hitchhiking, freight hopping, the American West and Midwest. And I know you teach a class here at Stanford on the road trip. Mm -hmm. um, where do you trace the beginnings of your interest in this subject? Well, I think, you know, just personally, my family used to do these long cross-country road trips when I was a kid. And um, in the summertime, my parents were both pastors, and they had like three weeks off every, every summer, and we'd usually go out west to the mountains and hike. And uh, so we'd load up the family van. And I think they did it this way mainly just because it was cheaper. But um, we drove across the country camping at campgrounds, and going on these little minor adventures, you know, to like Yellowstone or to, uh, you know, Devil's Tower and um, these kind of destination points out west. And I think that doing that from a young age and then doing a lot of like being from Minnesota, doing a lot of outdoorsy stuff and doing a lot of hiking in the mountains um, gave me this feeling of 
a journey narrative uh, or journey story and just a pre- an appreciation for that kind of narrative arc. And um, I think as I got older and just um, started to travel myself, I, I saw something that I wanted to really articulate in literature that I hadn't seen that was sort of a displaced sense of place, uh, a sense of kind of mobile regionalism um, that was migratory and that played with the idea of destiny and fate, but in a way that never resolved and in a way that was uh, um, less of, uh, less of a, a, a straight line and more of a circle. And is it difficult to sort of write poems that are auto to some of them autobiographical in this context, like to mm. place yourself in the sort of mythological narrative. Yeah. I, I know what you mean. Um, it's a little maybe narcissistic in a way, but, <laughs> but uh, I think what, what interests me always is like new narratives, you know, like new, new takes on old tropes and, you know, new forms and new styles. And, um, I like innovation and I like poetry that doesn't really, um, sound like something that has already been written before. Sounds like something that is from the past. Um, I think there's pressure on poets for some reason because of the way the publishing world is set up to write poems that people are comfortable with and that people feel like they've heard before in a way. And I think those are the poems that often are on trend and get published a little more easily um, when there's an older generation who's hearing something in the younger generation that it recognizes. But I really wanted to do something that was more new, more, um, you know, just based on what I was experiencing in my generation. Do you reach a point where you start to think of the speaker in these poems? And I'm, I'm thinking not of uh, a persona poem like Freddy Krueger, but the other ones, do you reach a point where you start to think of that speaker as a character or an entity who's separate from you that you can sort of manipulate or control or? I'm so honestly, I'm kind of limited in that, in that way. Like I don't see, I, I think that's maybe uh, an issue in, in some ways with the book because um, I wish I could do that, but I'm, I'm very much drawn to like kind of a documentary aesthetic of things and all the poems in the book are nonfiction and like, or nonfiction all. And, uh, you know, I've, I've, I've exaggerated things and I've, I've switched maybe a location here or there. Um, but I tried to keep everything pretty close to experiences that I've had, things that I've actually seen, characters that I've actually talked to, um, and scenarios that I've actually lived through. And I think that is just, I, I don't know why I have stuck so closely to that. Um, I think it's, I think it probably hurts the narrative potential in some way of the book because I did construct it sort of like a little bit of a novel, a verse novella where there's a storyline that goes through. 
Um, and I think if I would have just said, oh, I can write about whatever I want, I can make myself do whatever I want, um, Whitman and Whitman's famous quote, um, whoever touches this book touches a man when he's talking about leaves of grass. Um, when I started writing, I, I took that kind of earnesty uh, or earnestness to heart when I um, thought about the type of poetry that I wanted to write. So that's what I've tried to do, but it's maybe limited. Well, I think as a writer in any genre, you want to feel like you're not full of shit. You want to feel like you have some authority, some solid ground under your feet. And yeah. However you get there. Um, I'm curious just where a poem starts for you. Mm. Um, I was thinking maybe in particular of King, where you, you have the story of your friend who died and you have this image of the salmon run. And I just wonder how, how do those two disparate elements or how do any sort of disparate elements come together? Yeah. Well, I kind of have, um, a cobbler's method of writing poems. Like I, I usually, when I, when I'm traveling, I, I carry a moleskin journal on me all the time and little pocket journal. And I just, I jot down images, fragments, like things I overheard, like, uh, just sensory details as I'm going. And a lot of that is just sort of, you know, random stuff. But at the same time, every once in a while, you catch glimpses of things when you write that way or, or record that way that are so spontaneous and that are so um, uh, weird and strange and unexpected that it's hard, it's very hard to conjure those things intentionally when you're sitting down by yourself in your room just with your imagination and your laptop up. You know, it's, it's, it's very hard to get a feeling of, of spontaneous improvised impression or language. And that's what I really love in poetry. I love when there are wild combinations, when there are swervings of the heart that you don't expect. And so I've written a lot of poems that way where I, I get a line and then maybe... 10 minutes later, I get another line and then I sit down a week later and I look back and I'm like, those two lines had something going on. You know, there was some energy there. And that's when I sit down at my laptop and I, I take those two lines or three lines or whatever it was and I just write them out and I think about them and I feel them out and there's a rhythm always inherent. If you write a good line of poetry before it's become a poem, you can always feel like the inherent goodness in the line, the music, the the interest, the weirdness or whatever it is. And then you just keep working on it and you, you try to like put yourself back in the mindset that you were in when you, you found that line and you just let the poem unfold and you you just follow it wherever it wants to go and sometimes it wants to be a long poem sometimes it doesn't want to be that long but i've found that the poem will dictate what it wants to become if you pay enough attention to like the the inherent music within it um and in that poem king that you brought up i think the line uh Waters combining with other more powerful waters. 
was a line that I got just looking at the water and the salmon, you know, and I was like, what's happening here? And I just wrote down waters combining with other more powerful waters. And I thought that's where it is. That's what's going on. That's what, um, I need to center this poem around. And I think that's how it began. It was that seed. And, and that early sort of feeling your way through the poem, that's largely a sonic. It sounds like, is it largely about the musicality of, of sentences and lines? For me, I think it's like, I think it's a combo of musicality and image. And I'm a very like visual thinker, you know, like I think in terms of photography, I think in terms of film, um, when I, when I go back in my memory, you know, it's like these, these snippets, everything's very vivid. Everything's in color. Everything is acted out. And, um, I think what I want first is music. I want that, that tone that the poem has. And then I want the scene to be somewhere suggested. And like when I, when I, when I write, I think I write through my, um, as if I'm kind of like composing, uh, a photograph or a picture or a, a film. I, I go to those visual mediums and I go to that kind of that visual place of description, but it has to start with music. Um, I've tried writing the poems, you know, where it's just me describing imagery and that doesn't work. It's not a poem. It just, it seems flat somehow. I also want to ask about your poem, The Child's Head, mm. which just to go back to what you had said earlier about, or what we had talked about earlier about seeing yourself as a character, the, the potential or limits of that. I, I thought that was a persona poem also when I read it first. Um, and I also wondered, it, it's, um, it's after Roberto Bolaño. Yeah. And I wonder what, how he inspired that poem or how he inspired yeah. your work in general. Well, I think Bolaño, uh, I mean, he's just, he's one of my favorite prose writers. And before the Savage Detectives, he wrote this book called Antwerp that was basically all of his themes, the detective stuff, you know, the, the, the dead people, the dismemberment and everything, um, it was all in that book, but it was, it were prose poems. And, um, I read that book a few times. I was like, Oh my gosh, this is so brilliant. And I wanted to write something about that experience, about that, that, that kid that was found. And, um, because when I was younger, it was so jarring and strange and this, but the weird thing to me was just that it was forgotten. And, um, Bologna was pointing that out in a lot of ways, especially in 2666, you know, that's a book that's just a, a catalog of grotesque murders. Um, but, um, I think his indifference or his pointing out the indifference to violence um, as a way to actually see more objectively what's happening and how, how horrendous some of these, these acts or these things are, 
I think is part of the impetus for that. And I've always loved his voice, so I wrote that poem a little bit in his voice, you know? It felt like that. I think it's partially why I thought it was a persona poem, because it kind of felt like one of those, like, Bolaño poet, like, outsider <laughs> right. dudes living in hibernation. Right. Um, I'd like to ask how the work you do on a poem changes once you start to think of it as belonging to a collection. And you've mm. talked about this book as a verse novella, and... Um, you're you're very articulate about the themes mm. that it explores um yeah. and but you've also talked about how when you're working on the poem it's a more intuitive sort of granular process how do you make the leap from maybe thinking more critically and and globally about these poems working together as a book and does that change the kind of work you do on a poem yeah, I mean, it does It does to a degree. And when I started to write this book, I was thinking about it from the beginning as a book. You know, when I started to work on the poems, I knew that I wanted it. This is, you know, I started writing this in 2007, you know. And the the way that I started writing it when, it, when I knew it was on this track was when I met this, this guy – uh, who is called the cloud maker in the, in this book, in these poems. And he was a, a guy that was living on the street in Seattle. And he started talking to me and he was telling me how he makes clouds and how he uh, can control the weather and how he um, has a, you know, a cloud buster kind of machine um, to harness energy and stuff. And, um, I was just interested in this guy and the scope of his idea and the scope of of his vision of the world and the way that he organized it was just, um, you know, on the surface level, very crazy. But then as I talked to him over the course of like two hours, turned out to be like extremely in-depth and interesting and everything was sort of intertwined and interrelated into this weird logic that he had. And um, I've found that, you know, with some of the stuff that I've gone through just in my own life with depression and some mental health stuff, um, my mind has at times kind of started to, to bend a little bit into um, a zone where things take on more significant meaning than they otherwise would, where you know, this, that Starbucks cup, for whatever reason, if I was, you know, uh, in a, in a weird state of mind, um, and hadn't taken my Ativan yet, um, I would start to feel like there was some like spiritual significance to the Starbucks cup. And I would see, see, um, signs and symbols in it and ways that it was kind of like telling me something ways that I was supposed to like interact with it. And, um, I wanted this book to be a little bit about depression and I wanted it to be a little bit about that type of thinking, but not so obviously. I wanted it to be um, the kind of book that when you read one poem, you think, oh, that's neat. That's about this thing. You read another poem, you're like, oh, that's neat. That's about a different thing. But then as you read 10 poems into the book, you see a poem that combines both the things 
that were in those two poems that seemed disparate, but now are kind of being woven together. And um, the I wanted it to be that kind of large mental landscape that um, I, you know, have experienced in ways in part myself and um, have also experienced through people um, who are seeing the world a little bit differently or daring to do that or forced to do that for whatever reason. Um, you know, I, I don't think there is a ton of really articulate mythology or investigation of mental illness that allows for it to exist um, as a point of interest or as as a positive thing. And I had a, a lot of trouble while I was going through it finding any positive thing in it. And like, I couldn't write when I was going through this. Like, I wasn't inspired the way that you think about some like artists who romanticize who we, or at least who through history, we romanticize their mental illness, like Van Gogh or something like that. Um, and I, I, I knew that I wanted that to be part of the book and I wanted to give, um, a little bit more of a nuanced portrayal of what that is, both in my experience and then through some of the characters that are, that are in this. Well, thank you so much for appearing on Off the Page. Of course. Thank you, Mark. Uh, it's been a pleasure. This episode was produced by Alessandra Wallner, Maddie Curtis, and our talented team of producers, editors, and coaches. Aaron Wu, Sienna White, Aparna Verma, Yui Lee, Claudia Haymack, Christopher Laboa, Victoria Wan, and Jet Hayward. Thanks to Leland Quarterly for their editorial help, especially Zui Zhao. Thanks to Jonah Willingans for his supervision, and to Ivan Bolin, Christina Ablatza, and Ose Jackson at the Creative Writing Program. For their generous support to the Stanford Storytelling Project, we'd like to thank the Vice Provost for Undergraduate Education, Stanford Arts, and Bruce Braden.